I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad. On today's show are my co-hosts Katina and Garen. Today's topic is Black Lives Matter. We first go over why historically black lives haven't mattered, and then we go into how it began, why it exists, and then we end it with giving you some helpful language to be able to have discussions with other people about Black Lives Matter. Due to the length of this episode, we had to break it up into two parts. You're currently listening to part one. Make sure that you keep an eye out in your feed for part two as well, and we hope you enjoy the discussion. Garen, can you explain to us what is Black Lives Matter? How, when did it begin? Tell me about the history of it. Yeah, to start out, I'm going to actually just pull from the Black Lives Matter website. I think let them describe it in their own words. They say the Black Lives Matter Global Network is a chapter-based member-led organization whose mission is to build local power and to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. Quick note to white people on Black Lives Matter. A lot of what is out there in the atmosphere about the Black Lives Matter movement is actually misinformation. There's actually documentation. Uh, We're actually in the show notes going to put a link to a New York Times article about how Russian misinformation was deliberately targeting the Black Lives Matter movement and promoting Facebook posts that were just not true about the movement. There's actually one documented instance, maybe more, where Russia and their kind of troll farms were creating rallies for Black Lives Matter at the same time that they were creating counter rallies for white power movements and deliberately putting them next to each other in order to try to create discord and violence in society. So Russia in 2016 was trying, aside from trying to affect the election, they were also just trying to create fractures within American society to destabilize us. And so it's documented well that they targeted the Black Lives Matter movement in order to try to get white people upset at it. And so a lot of what's out there is not true information. And so you got to be on your guard and make sure you're actually looking at credible sources when you are investigating it. Wow, that's heavy. I mean, I guess they did a good job of changing the rhetoric of white people and Black Lives Matter. When did it begin? Like, when did, do you know how it started? Yeah, so the hashtag was first used. Some of you guys probably remember back when there was George Zimmerman shot Trayvon Martin and was acquitted for that, and the hashtag was first used at that point. But at that point, there was not a formal organization formed. It was just a hashtag. So it was like someone just posted something and used that hashtag, and then it took off. It just went viral. Okay. The, The hashtag went viral. Okay. Which the history behind that is something that we're going to get into more. Because something doesn't just go viral unless a lot of people have a feeling or a sentiment that they want to like repost it. So there's a lot behind the hashtag, a lot of sentiment behind the hashtag we're going to have to get into. But we'll go back to that in a minute. The, the actual organization formed in 2014, there was two incidents that kind of happened simultaneously where Mike Brown in St. Louis 
was shot and Eric Garner in New York City was suffocated. So the organizational structure behind the organization kind of formed at that point. But really, and this is what, what I wanted to get into for a minute here, is the history behind the Black Lives Matter movement goes a lot further back than just modern events. There is in our country a 400 plus year history of Black Lives Not Mattering. And there is in the hashtag and in the statement Black Lives Matter, there's a lot of pain that white people oftentimes miss. I think white people tend to get defensive when they hear that. And they take it as an accusation rather than entering in and seeing that there's like pain in those words. Why do you why do you think we do that? Why do you think we get def- I mean that's a big question, but why do you think we get defensive when we hear Yeah, that's when a we good hear question. Black Lives Matter. I think that white people tend to hear it as a statement that hey, you aren't treating us like our lives matter. And so the white people react to that as like as if it's an accusation, mm-hmm. which we're going to get into the fact that it actually, in a large part, is a fair accusation. But then they miss the, the hurt in it. And it's not a loving response. Because anytime somebody tells you that they're hurt, if your instinctive response is to defend yourself, that's not loving. Rather than to enter in and see like what the pain was and to find out what the hurt is that's there and to address that and to repent of what you can repent of and to, to love. So I think the response of white culture to this movement, to this hashtag, has not been a loving response. Right. Katina, tell me, what are your, when, we, when you see someone wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, you see the hashtag used, what's going through your head? What are you, what's your dialogue in your head when you think about Black Lives Matter? I mean, when I think, when I think about Black Lives Matter... I just think about black people being centered in a way that we normally are not. The only reason why black lives matter is a thing is because black lives have not mattered. And so it's an affirmation that we're made in a likeness and an image of God and that we are human and that we have stories and that we are not just stereotypes and typecast and, you know, that that we that we have purpose, that God has designed us to be here for a reason, that we, you know, that we exist beyond marginalization and oppression, that we dream, that we imagine. Yeah. That we're everyday people, like, that we want to be treated like everyone else, you know? And so it's, it's, it's just interesting that Black Lives Matter is such a, a stumbling block uh, for white people. Mm It, it, it just, it's, it, it, even God talks about the, you know the least of these. So yeah, I, I really love what you both kind of hinted at. There is like it's an affirmation and not an accusation, and I think that's such a helpful. I mean, that's literally like the opposite thing, at least in my head. When I when I think of a Black Lives Matter, to, if I think of it as an accusation, I want to like ask myself. Or, and I really think you should, even a listener, if you, if that's what you think. I mean, maybe ask yourself why you think it's an accusation and why you don't think it's an affirmation. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's really helpful. Garen, can you go into like what you kind of said, why it exists, but what are the goals of Black Lives Matter? 
Uh, actually, like what, what are they trying to do? I want to jump back, if I can, into a little bit more of the history. Okay, yeah. Kind of what's under the surface. I'm just going to run through it briefly. And a lot of these things, we're going to have episodes in the future that will cover these in more depth. Yeah. But just want to, for listeners that are new and are just coming to this conversation, a lot of you might think that slavery was something that happened in the past. And then you kind of just jump into the present moment and you're like, it's not around anymore. So it's just past. Right. But just to talk about the story of Black Lives Not Mattering in a more comprehensive way, just okay. running through it briefly. Slavery was 70% of American history. The majority of the American story, black lives did not matter. Could yeah. literally be bought and sold and killed without consequence. And then even after slavery ended, that's not when the story of the devaluation of black lives stopped. That pretty quickly after the end of slavery, you had the law abolishing slavery made an exception for prisoners. So anyone who was imprisoned could still be subjected to forced labor. So Mm -hmm. then you moved into this period of convict leasing. And throughout the South and much of America, you had legislatures pass absurd laws criminalizing all kinds of things just as a front in order to be able to go into black communities and arrest black men in order to basically conscript them into forced labor, yeah. post-slavery. Mm. And the, the, it was called convict leasing. And actually, in a lot of ways, it was more brutal than slavery because the, the companies that would then lease these prisoners had no financial stake in even keeping them alive. Mm. They would literally work them to death over the course of a, a couple months of forced labor and then just lease a new prisoner. And there were, there were laws, I mean, if you look into it, the, the laws... They would arrest people and give them absurdly long sentences for things that should not even be crimes. Things like talking to a white woman or things like not having employment would be criminalized and basically they would be worked to death for these things. Yeah, I mean, as you're, as you're saying those things, I've, part of me is like, there's an urge and what I feel like is like, I can't even like imagine that. Like, I, I can't imagine that happening in our society like today. And so I have this urge to want to like, that's not, that's not my story. That's not our story, but it is. But mm-hmm. I have this urge to want to be like, oh, I don't like that. And then there's a bigger part that's just like, I literally can't even imagine that happening and anybody being okay with that. I think that's just, that's just kind of like thought in my head right now. I'm sure a lot of listeners are probably feeling that. It's hard for, it's hard to imagine that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part, maybe why it's a little difficult to acknowledge like that's our story. That's yeah. how, that's, that is actually what happened. It's real life. Yeah. And again, if your instinct is to hear this as an accusation, say like, well, that wasn't me, then you're missing the point because it's not an accusation. It's this is the pain that's in that statement, Black Lives Matter. Yeah. The, then even moving forward from there, you go into Jim Crow and segregation. Black lives did not matter during that period. There were many instances where police would send dogs after black people, shoot water hoses, fire hoses at black people, would beat them up just for demanding equal treatment and lynching, would just snuff out the lives of black people as a form of public sanctioned terrorism against black communities. Mm. So thousands of instances where white people would advertise in newspapers in advance that they were going to perform lynchings, would sometimes have thousands of people in attendance at wow. these lynchings, including 
police officers and ministers, children, children huh. would cut fingers off of lynch victims and give them out as tokens. Yep. Would take photographs and publish them. Postcards. Would create postcards. Wow. Black lives did not matter. And then that sparked the mass migration where black people in large numbers fled the South because their lives did not matter there and went North and went to other parts of the country. But even in those places, their lives didn't matter. They were not allowed to buy property in white areas. So they were forced into certain districts of town. I used to live in St. Louis and it's like one of the most segregated cities And that didn't just happen organically. It happened because black people arriving, fleeing terrorism in the South, were forced to live in depressed areas. Hmm. There's a process called redlining. They weren't allowed to buy houses in white communities. And as soon as one black person bought a house in a white community, all the white people would leave. Hmm. The values would drop and all the white people would try to sell their houses because it, it became a segregated neighborhood. And so, and then all the business investment fled because the white people controlled all the capital and all the businesses. So it would flee to other areas. And that's what caused the suburbs. Like the suburbs that exist today are because white people fled from communities that were integrated. And then you have Black Lives Not Mattering after schools were integrated. If you look up what year private schools Uh, take the top 10 private schools nearest to you, listener, and look up what year they were founded. Mm-hmm. And I can almost guarantee that at least like six or seven of the 10 were founded in the three years following the integration of schools. Mm-hmm. That there are some instances where every single white child was pulled out of a, of a desegregated school. Wow. The white people basically refuse to live in community with black people. And this is not ancient history now. Like we've moved forward to when you meet an older black or white, an older person in your life now, they live through this. Yeah. Like I'm a millennial, so this was a little bit before my time, but the people who we live and interact with went through this. And then black lives didn't matter. Uh, even veterans, post-World War II, black men in a, many instances didn't receive GI bills mm. when, they, when they fought. So they got back, didn't receive their GI bill, and so they couldn't buy houses the way a lot of white people could. And then that lack of having ownership of a house moving forward through time becomes the main source of wealth for a lot of white people. It's your ownership in your home. Yeah. And so it's just this increasing cycle and continuing cycle of inequality. And then we move into... Well, and I'm going to pause you right there, if yep. you don't mind. When you were talking about white flight, then there's this thing that is, is it, where white people would take over black areas or black townships or, you know, black people after slavery, many of them across the country would start their own townships and kind of form their own communities mm -hmm. and kind of insulate themselves for protection. And so, you know, we hear these stories, you know, from all over the country, Rosewood, Tulsa, it happened in Memphis, it happened here in Denton, what they call the uh, Quaker town, just all throughout the country where black people you know, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, as people would say, why don't they pull them? Well, they did. All across the country, and white people would get jealous. You know, the residents would get jealous. And so then what would happen with the lynching? People would be burned alive. Their towns would be burned down. And it would start with something like, 
oh, a white woman was raped by a black man, which wouldn't happen, like in the case of Rosewood in Florida. It didn't happen, but it just takes that spark. Make a, Let's make up a story. Mm-hmm. It's always centered around, you know, the raping of a white woman, and then a whole town, a whole black community is burnt to the ground. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the government officials, the local government officials, or the universities, colleges and universities, state government, they're wanting to expand. In the case of Denton, in, in Quakertown, they want to expand their college. They want to expand businesses. Well, they just take... They move they they move the black communities over, you know, or offer them, you know, money or a fraction of what their houses are worth, or even gentrification. So gentrification is another part. It's like black people cannot, we can't, we, we can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. And just because they're black people that are successful, it does not negate the margins. It doesn't mm-hmm. negate the yeah. mass, like the mass number of people that can't get hit for gener- because for generations there's been this oppression and this marginalization and this loss of opportunity or this lack of opportunity or this stripping of opportunity. And so it's not even just white flight. It's like white infiltration into black communities to take what black communities have built up and, you know, to take it back. Oh, you're doing good over here, so we'll take it back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It even compounds from there, like where banks then look at black communities and businesses that are forming and view them as more risky. Yeah. Because there's these acts of terrorism. Absolutely. uh, That are suppressing them. And so banks lend at higher interest rates. Even today, Mm -hmm. like even in the last month, I read an article about how black-owned businesses are being charged higher interest rates by some of the large banks in America. And there are disparities even during COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're seeing that where white, white businesses or businesses that are already successful that can thrive and survive, they're getting the money. They're getting the PPP. They're getting, you know, access to the support while small black businesses are just dying. Yeah. And then the last kind of big chapter to, to talk about is the shift into mass incarceration. Yep. And there are, there's like quotes and evidence that during the Nixon administration, mass incarceration was deliberately engineered with like self-awareness as a means of suppressing black communities. That it's known that drugs are sold and used at proportional rates between all the races. But they deliberately made, they took the drugs that were being used more in the black communities and attached 100 times longer sentences. The war on drugs. Yeah, to to possession of those drugs and Mm -hmm. selling of those drugs. And then police would crack down more in those communities. And so there was, both through the, the convict leasing that we talked about earlier and through mass incarceration, there's been this promotion of an idea that black people are more criminal, more likely to be criminal. That actually is an invented idea. Like during slavery, that was not the view of black people. During the convict leasing period, there was like all kinds of advertising and promotion and literature and books and music that deliberately cast black people as being criminal or having Mm -hmm. a propensity to criminal because there was this massive campaign to lock them all up so that they could continue slavery in this new form of convict leasing. And then that idea passed down through through mass incarceration when laws were written targeting black communities. And, and then we have 
police and police violence and the the legal system continues to have bias against black communities. Well, they were created to have bias against black communities. And and the campaign against the campaign of criminality, it wasn't just criminality. Black people are lazy, lazy, they're shiftless. Black women are you know, hypersexualized during slavery, they were raped. They they were bred like animals, and mm-hmm. so just anything that could that that could cast a shadow of proverbial darkness on the race to substantiate their inferiority, which in, in, enables and empowers the majority culture to to then take this burden of responsibility to treat us like, well, we have to reel them in. We have to, you know, we have to lord over them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then even tie scriptures into it, you know, make it, make it a part of their religion. Yeah. Yeah, just an entire campaign. And some of you might be thinking, if you're not coming from this perspective, your defensive reaction could be to say like, no, I think that black people commit crimes at higher rates. And so then there's, they get in more trouble. So just to address that with some statistics to show you that that's not what's happening here. Black youths are 18 times more likely in America right now to be tried as an adult mm. as white youths. Like there's no there there's no that already accounts for like that's not because there's more youths being tried. It's it's if a black youth commits a crime, he is 18 times more likely than a white youth who committed an identical crime to be tried as an adult. That is just pure bias in our perspective. Yeah. That we see black youths as being having this propensity to crime, danger, and we are more likely to try them as an adult. Where if we see a white 16-year-old boy, white people, we tend to see him as my nephew's kid. He reminds me of me at that age. Yeah. We'll, and we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. But then when we see a black 16-year-old boy who does something identical, our perspective will tend to shift and we're like, oh, I don't feel safe with with this. Yeah. It's some... like youthful discretion versus criminality. Mm-hmm. Presumed criminality. It's like, let's give this kid a break versus, well, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's a criminal. Yeah. yeah. And and some of it, on the news, we there is a two-and-a-half-fold over-representation of black criminality on the news. Yes. So that basically if, if a black man and a white man convict a crime the same day, an identical crime, the black man is two and a half times more likely to be shown on the news. Hmm. And uh, even here locally in Dallas and Denton, I see these, these billboards that are put up, g- giant wanted billboards along the sides of our highways. And there's a massive over-representation of black men on those billboards. I think for the news, news is always going after a startling reaction. They want to draw people in, and the way you do that is to evoke fear. And people, white people, are more afraid of a black man than a white man. Yeah. So, so there's this over-representation that creates this societal ideal of black criminality that isn't actually accurate to the statistics of where we're at. I mean, there's a misconstrued and a skewed view of the danger of black people. And just getting a bit more of this, I'm going to run through some kind of fast. Yeah. Um, black people are in America today four times more likely to be in extreme poverty. 50% overrepresented, black poor are 50% overrepresented, overrepresented on the news. So the news 
will show when they want a B-roll footage of a poor person, they'll tend to show a black person rather than a white person, and it overrepresents the actual true picture. Minorities are three times more likely to be suspended from preschool. Black mm. babies are three times more likely to be suspended at that age. I mean, a, a 50% difference would be huge, but that's a 300% difference. It shows the bias that we have in how we view minorities. Minorities are 30% more likely to be pulled over, and in some areas, that can be way higher. I have a close friend who was pulled over something like 50 times when he was younger without ever being given a ticket. Just pulled over, vehicle searched, and then let go. Minorities are three times more likely to have their vehicles searched and four times more likely to be charged with a crime and receive on average 20% longer prison sentences. Convicted 16% more of the time for identical crimes by when, when their jury is an all-white jury. And minorities, and this is where we get into the Black Lives Matter thing a little bit more directly, is that minorities are, depending on the study, there's not real good studies, they're like four to nine times more likely to be shot while unarmed. And so you look at these police shootings, and, and I think people who view Black Lives Matter as an accusation will tend to defend the situation by saying, well, the white police officer felt threatened in that moment, so they used deadly force. And we as white people empathize with that white police officer and think, well, I could see how he could feel scared if it was dark at night and here's this black man who our society casts as being probably criminal and he felt afraid. And then we don't empathize with the black community that is actually being lied about and cast as criminal to a much greater degree than, than they are. And then that is being used as an excuse for police just erring on the side of shooting black men. So, so there are instances where police officers are just overtly racist. In America, if you take a poll today and ask people what they think about black people, roughly 10% of Americans will give overtly racist responses. If you think we're past racism, we're objectively not. There are at least 10% of people are overtly racist. But Mm. even for the remaining 90%, a lot of us have just misconstrued views. Like you might not be overtly racist. You might not think black people are inferior, but you still are watching the news. And you're still subliminally getting the wrong idea of some of these things. And subliminally, you're affected by the legacy of racism and the legacy of mass incarceration and the legacy of all these things we've talked about. And so a lot of police officers are, whether some of them are just overtly brutal and targeting black people. Some of them are just quick to pull the trigger when they see an unarmed black man. But in both cases, that is a devaluation of black life that we need to address. Mm-hmm. Because to do anything less is unloving. And if we allow this story to just continue unabated, then we are playing a part of perpetuating injustice within our society. And if we don't do anything to stop it, it's going to go for generations and generations to come. And it's interesting, everything that you were saying, I I have a story for and I can identify with personally. I mean, the neighborhood that we live in, my husband works in law enforcement and has worked in law enforcement for 20 plus years. He went to college to study criminology. He went to police academy. We've been pulled over in our neighborhood once because there was license plate not on both the front 
and the back. We had license plate on the front, I think, and maybe not on the back. No, on the back and not the front. Mm. The officer pulled us over, and he was like, I, and he said, I know this is going to sound petty. And I was pregnant at the time with our second son. He's like, I know this is going to sound petty, but you guys don't have a plate in, in front, you know, of your car. And, and he, you know, it was just bizarre. And then he was like, can I ask you something? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, you know, why, why are you all in this neighborhood? What mm. are you doing here in this neighborhood at night? And so I was like, officer, do you see this house right here? You know, pointing to the house. He's like, yeah, I'm like, we live there. And he was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, and I'm pregnant and I have to pee. Mm. <laughs> can I go home so I can use the bathroom? Like, mm-hmm. and I'm like, what, 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 you know, I, it, 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 it was, it's just ridiculous. And my husband works in law enforcement mm-hmm. and we've been pulled over. My, my oldest son, all, the whole community knows my family. We're very active in the community. Yeah. My boys are known. They're respected, respectable boys. They're all the things. We're model citizens. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. my son has been pulled over. He's been handcuffed. His car has been searched. He has dreadlocks. He's you know, tall, handsome, black boy. He's been, you know, skateboarding down the street. He's been pulled over for that. It's, I, I know people whose family members who have been killed. I know children that have been killed by police brutality. Br- brutality. And these are kids that I know personally mm. that, you know, I watched them grow up. I know them. My godbrother, who is in law school and was a scholarship student at UNT, was speeding because his father was dying. He was coming down 35. The police officer pulled him over, but then it became this, he, he, he beat him up and he put him in jail. Mm-hmm. And my, bro, my godbrother is not combative. He, you know, none of that. You know, just I'm trying to get to the hospital. My dad's dying of cancer. And how does that go from that to him being beat up and put in jail? And he's in the military. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, I mean, I have I, a deacon from one of the local churches, black deacon, who the whole community knows and loves. He's a, a well-known, well-respected musician in the community, has been here for years, jovial, happy, you know, all the things was pulled over and a gun was put to his head. Like, he's a father. This man is like a father to me. He is the, he, he's one of the most unassuming, sweetest, kindest. And the thing is, is that you shouldn't have to be all that. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't, you could be, you, I've seen white people be jerks to cops, spit at cops, cuss cops out. I'll have your job. Do you know who my father is? Why are you pulling me? I've seen all of that with my own eyes, and they live to see another day. Mm-hmm. And I see black people who are nice, who are, you know, a, a law-abiding citizens get pulled over. And I know many cases where they've been disrespected, treated like garbage. And I've been pulled over several times. Several times. I mean, since I've been driving, <laughs> since I was in college. And so these stories are very common. We, white people get to see now, thank God for social media. And thank, thank God that we, black people, are mobilized through so, social media. And we're mobilized with being able to film, take out our phones and film these occurrences and make 
America see. But for many years, there was no camera. And it wasn't going to make the news. And even now, still, there are cases of murder. There's cases of brutality. It, it, it takes a lot. For every story of when they see us, like, there's a million of those stories. I have one personally that, that's impacted my family where people do not get out of jail. They are innocent. They have served. They, they get, you know, posthumously, they get justice, you know, 30 years after they died. I mean, I know plenty of those stories, plenty of those stories. And I know people, you know, in the community that have plenty. We, we all know somebody or we are that somebody that has that story just because it makes the news, like it, those few stories that make the news are nothing compared to what the reality is. Yeah. And so, and that's with black people who, who like me, I'm, I'm a businesswoman. I work in the community. I'm affluent for all intents and, and purposes. Like we, you know, we're, we're police officers, we're healthcare administrators, we're, you know, bus drivers, we're teachers, and we have those stories. And oftentimes, because of the way the world system is set up, we are ashamed to share those. There's no platform for us to share that. And so thank God that we're able to whip the phones out and film and capture some of this craziness and make America grapple with the reality because this is our reality, our regular routine reality, more often than not. Yeah. So I mean, I think of even Ahmaud Arbery, he... In that case, a camera happened to be filming what was happening, what went down. And so there's a national outcry. And it appears at this point as if justice will happen there. They're going to like actually have a trial. Hopefully, yeah. But for every case that happens to be caught on film, how many hundreds of cases yes. aren't caught on film? And in this instance with Arbery, two months went by before the footage came out where nothing happened. 74 days? Yeah. How many times does nothing happen? Because Because it didn't happen to get caught on film. So even the films that we see now, I think a lot of white people respond by looking at the individual case and trying to poke holes in it. Right. They but, try to yeah. criminal, criminalize the victims. Yeah. Armand Arbery is being criminalized mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. And Black people are often put on trial when they're the victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think of the, the, the black man here in Dallas who the police officer came into his home and then Botham killed John. him. Mm-hmm. And then it was released shortly after that in the news that what, there was like a little bit of marijuana supposedly found in his home. Right. That, that like he was just trying to be cast according to this stereotype that white people have in order to kind of shift the story mm-hmm. to make him... His not death a justifiable. Yeah, to yeah. make him, to make him it, it like a reasonable thing that he was just shot in his own home, and that's a, a pattern that you gotta watch out for, white people, because look for it next time you hear of one of these incidents, perk your ears up and listen over the course of the next couple of days for this happening because it happens pretty much every time. Right, and black people, we know we we code switch. We're not gonna lay out our trauma for you when we know one is not a safe space and two is not going to matter. <laughs> so black people have these stories, people, black people that you work with, and you may even ask them and they're still not going to tell you because they see how you operate in the workplace and they see how you benefit and they see your privilege on display. 
and black people and how we have have to navigate in the workplace and at schools and in, in white spaces. Like black trauma is real and we should not have to lay out our trauma for us to be believed. But that's a whole thing. Yeah. It's like we have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. We shouldn't have to make a case for oppression. If people would open their eyes, they could see it, but people don't want to see it. And when they do see it, it's like they have to grapple and wrestle with it. And most often people don't want to grapple and wrestle with it. So they need to tidy it up. Well, in this situation, no, he shouldn't have died, but he went into a house and looked around. So see there, there, that's why they made a citizen's arrest. Like citizen's arrest and open carry, they are just white privilege. It's literally a way, a means. It's, 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 it's this white, it's a lynch mob mentality. This is how they used to round black people up. You know, it, 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 they didn't just rely on police officers. It was any white citizen that felt incited to subdue a black person. So lynch mobs, citizens arrest, open carry, because if black people, if this would have been two black men following a white man jogging, they would have, they might have been killed. Mm-hmm. If this, because I, and we, and we know this, we see this. Mm-hmm. There's no way that if you put, if you reverse these roles, there's absolutely no way two black men Somebody would have called the police and said, there's these two black guys chasing this man. Yeah. There's no way. And if a white man were, we, I mean, we live next to a construction site where new homes are going up. People are walking around there all the time and mm-hmm. they're looking. And if the house is like, it's a construction site of, of new homes. People are inquisitive. That's nothing. I've done yeah. that. Many I've times. done it. Well, I don't, I mean, after this case, I'm like very, like, I don't just right. go on people's property, but we walked around that neighborhood just the other day, this neighborhood just the other day. And, and we're look, we were looking at the homes, not, you know, from street side, but I mean, it's just, it's just, it's crazy that everything is out there in plain sight, but we want to deny because we don't want to, white people want to deny because they don't want to want, want to grapple with the reality. They don't want to have to say that Papa is racist. They don't want to have to say that Nana is racist. Oh, they come from a different time. And oh, we just, they don't want to say their uncle Matt is racist. I see it all the time. People make excuses for the crazy stuff that people, that their family and their friends say. And they know it's wrong. But like I said, to wrestle with this stuff is to deal with the, with the, the reality, the truth. And, and I don't think America is ready to deal with that. And so black people continue to get slaughtered. We continue to be, our lives continue to be the collateral damage of white supremacy and apathy. So white people, I want to talk to you directly here. You are, it is incumbent on you to love black people. And part of that is hearing them, part of that is action. And, and the hearing part of that is to hear the pain in the slogan, Black Lives Matter. That there is, in those words, that should be the least controversial statement that anyone could make. The fact that our society has responded with anything other than yes, obviously, and then been able to like agree on that and from there move on towards dialogue. The fact that we have 
not been able to agree on something as basic as Black Lives Matter, but that it's become controversial shows the brokenness and the blind spots of white people. That we are not hearing the pain of black people who are saying, there is something real here. And if you look at polling, if you look at white people versus black people responding to questions like, is racism still a big factor today? You'll see 80-30 splits, like a huge difference in the responses. And white people a lot of times live in communities that don't have a lot of black people in them. And so they deliberately look away from the injustices that are happening. But that's not enough. It's not enough, dear white person, for you to just not have racism in your heart and go about your life and ignore the injustices that are actually happening all around you and that are even propping up some of the benefits you receive in this life. It's not enough for you to just wash your hands of it all and just say, well, I'm going to live a life and I'll have a couple black friends and then I'll prove by that that I'm not racist and I'm just going to live my life. There is a whole history that the story of America is a racist story. And there's a whole history of injustice that continues to today. And if you're not actively being a part of bringing justice, then you're not loving. And we here who are making this podcast, we are Christians. You don't have to be a Christian to listen to this podcast. We are talking to you regardless of your faith perspective. But a lot of white people are Christians. And for those of you who are, it's especially true that your greatest call in life is to love. That Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He defined the neighbor to be, in the Good Samaritan parable, to be people who don't look like you, to be everyone, to be the people. The whole mission of God was to bring the gospel to every ethne, every ethnicity, every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. There was no favoritism with God. It says in James 2 that if a, don't become judges among yourselves and discriminate with evil thoughts. If a man comes in your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in and you show special attention to the rich man and say, here's a good seat for you. But to the poor man, you say, you come sit over here by my feet or stand over there. Then have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And that is what we do in America now. We give favor to the favorable, to the people who look like us, to the people who talk like us. A lot of white people actually even think that their way of speaking is the correct way to speak, as if language is this thing that's not subjective, but instead that there's the, the white way of talking becomes like the standard and the norm. If you talk to like scientists of language. I'll tell you, that's not how language works. And yet we have, we, we take our experience and perspective. We make that normal. We judge everything else by that. And so we see other ethnicities, other cultures, other perspectives as inferior or off. And that is a proud and unloving position. Thanks for listening to part one of this episode. Make sure to look in your feed for part two. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, check us out at Patreon. We're at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. 
Remember that all the money from our first 10 episodes that we raise in Patreon will be directly going to the Denton African American Scholarship Foundation. We will be doing an interview with the founder in an upcoming episode, so be on the lookout for that. And I'll leave you with this quote from Maya Angelou. Do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better.